the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last post just All right, higher side chatters, it's become quite obvious to most of us that our society is dominated by the will of a few mega corporations and a carefully crafted culture that puts private profits far above the public health. Whether we're talking about energy, transportation, food, or medicine, we see a ton of cross-contamination of the same shady organizations hell-bent on owning, controlling, and monopolizing every last resource and revenue stream available. So when we approach subjects like GMOs in our food supply, chemical-soaked crops, and toxins in consumer products, it's not surprising that we look at these companies with a skeptical eye. Because we've watched them take the teeth out of regulatory agencies with Washington lobbying and a revolving door of their own agents. We've seen them infiltrate the universities and news media with huge donations and massive amounts of ad money. And we're well aware of the billion-dollar PR machine aimed right at us that says, Just consume. No need to dig any deeper. We'll grab a shovel, people, because today we're doing that deeper digging with McKay Jenkins, who is the Cornelius Tilgman Professor of English Journalism and Environmental Humanities at the University of Delaware, and the author of seven books, including two we're going to focus on today, entitled Contamination, My Quest to Survive in a Toxic World, and his latest release, Food Fight, GMOs, and the Future of the American Diet. A true champion of the people, educating the masses and shining a light in the darkness. McKay, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. I really enjoyed Food Fight, and I think you make a ton of excellent points about the safety of our food and the toxins in our products. But you're also careful not to get into the realm of being anti-science or paint with such a broad brush that we lose sight of exactly where the problems are and who's causing them. Because a term like GMO is very loaded these days, and the situation is actually a lot more complex than most people give it credit for. And you kick off the book with a great point in that everyone's first question is, are GMOs safe? And really, that might not even be the right question to ask. So maybe tell us why that is and what a better question might be. Well, I think you've you've really asked one of the most important questions, which is, uh, what is our relationship with the things that we consume most intimately? And then what do we know about those things? What do we know about how our food is made, under what conditions, by whom, where, with what kinds of chemical inputs, by what kinds of corporations? And then, of course, how do we know? How do we know who to trust when people tell us that this food is safe or this food is unsafe? And we can talk about this later, but it gets very complicated and parallel to a lot of other issues, which I'm sure you've talked about before, including things like climate change, where you have, you know, very, very powerful voices on all sides of the issue. You could have government on one side, and you could have corporations on another side, and you can have scientists on another side, and, and regular people are really left scratching their heads trying to figure out who they can trust. So the thing with GMOs is that you take it as a, as a baseline and this is where my my book really takes off, I think, from this kind of foundation, that people at this late stage of history in this country are extremely alienated from their food. They, they put stuff in their mouth, but they don't have any concept of where it came from. And 
there's all kinds of interesting data for that. So, for example, like back in the mid-19th century, something like 53% of all Americans worked on a farm. So, in other words, half of the United States worked on a farm. Now we have 300 million people living here and only 2% of the population works on a farm. Huh. So just from a from the get-go, if you think about San Diego where you are or Baltimore and Delaware where I am, up and down the East Coast, which I know best, major, major metropolitan population centers exist entirely separate from any kind of agriculture. Like most people that live in New York or Boston or Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., they don't they never see a farm. They don't have the faintest idea where food is made. And so you take that as a, as a fundamental fact of life that nobody knows where their food comes from. And then when some specter of uncertainty or specter of danger or worry crops up, people don't have anything to, to actually point their finger at because they don't actually know where the food is growing. So if they're eating a packaged, processed bag of some food product, and they eat it happily for a while, and then somebody says to them, did you know that that thing that you've been eating for several years is dangerous? Like, that's an, like an, a nonsensical question to them, because <laughs> they don't even know what it is. Like, they don't even know what they've been eating. They were eating it happily, and now they're eating it unhappily, but they don't know what the hell it is, or, you know, what, what even plants or animals went into it, because they can't recognize it you know, from where, from the original source of it. So you just take that as a baseline. And it's like, I like to tell my students, if you think about, well, here's another interesting statistic. If you take all of human history as a 24 hour clock, so human beings have been on the planet for 24 hours, let's say, how long have human beings been farming? Now, I don't mean farming with GMOs, I mean farming at all. And the answer is on a 24-hour clock, we've been human beings have been farming for about six minutes. So we were hunter-gatherers for, what is that, 23 hours and 54 minutes, and we've been farming for six minutes. So that six minutes is the equivalent of about 10,000 years. So whether you take 10,000 years or you take the whole 24 hours, how many generations of human beings have not known where their food came from? right? About three generations, right? I mean, yeah. even my grandparents would have at least been able to tell you where the apple orchard was or where the potato farm was or something. And nowadays you ask, you know, a college educated 20 year old where their lunch came from. And I've, I mean, I've done this a hundred times. Not one person in the room can tell you anything about it. So that's, that's what we're starting with, right? And we'll talk about everything else that grows on top of it, but that's what we're starting with. That level of deep ignorance, that's not like lack of education, and that is not somebody's like personal fault. That is just a structure of the world we've come to live in. Mm, well said, man. And yeah, deep ignorance is quite a term. And I, I would totally agree. And before we do get too far down the rabbit hole, I am curious if you could talk to us about the process that you went through during the research for this book, because it seems like you really immersed yourself in this stuff and traveled to places and talked to people on all sides of the issue, right? Yeah, I did. So like a little bit of a personal backdrop. So the other, I guess we'll talk about this other book later, this book Contamination was all about the toxic synthetic chemicals that go into make up all consumer products from cosmetics to drinking water bottles to carpeting, you name it. We can talk about that later. But that book came out a couple of years ago. And I ran around interviewing people about the, the presence of chemicals in everything except food, basically. Everything, I mean, literally everything except food. So that left this whole big hole about what is going into our food. And I, I confess, I, I say this with some confidence and safety or feeling of 
certainty. Now, I started the research into the GMO book being fairly skeptical of the whole thing, like the whole GMO thing really like my little bit of knowledge I had about it made me think that it was really something I was suspicious of and didn't trust and all that. So I went in there with a fairly one-sided opinion about it. And I said, you know, as a journalist, it's really ethically critical that you, you look at all sides of it. So really the first people that I started interviewing and spending a lot of time with were pro-GMO plant scientists who were basically saying anybody who's anti-GMO is stupid. And these are brilliant people. These are brilliant scientists. I'm not talking about like crazy activists. I'm talking about the scientists that are in the laboratory doing this work. And they said, look, you know, a lot of the stuff you read on the internet about about GMOs is all nonsense. It's not based on anything except kind of loose opinions. And it's really important if you're going to dig into this that you get deep into the actual science of it. And so I, you know, I immediately was knocked off stride because I that's not what I went out looking for. I went out looking for you know, what I found later, which is a lot of people who are really pissed off or really suspicious or, you know, conspiratorial, all that. I found plenty of that, but I also found the opposite. So the way I came down, so I, I traveled all over the country from up and down the East Coast, all the way through Missouri and Kansas. We can talk later about Hawaii. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Hawaii with GMOs. Talked to everybody I could talk to, pro, anti, scientists, policy people, activists, farmers, you name it. And you know, all this stuff kind of percolated through my system. And I ended up writing the book that you have, which is something like, I guess you could say, agnostic about the technology. In other words, the technology is what it is. The question is, how is that technology used? And we can talk at some length about the beneficial ways that it can be used or the very detrimental ways it can be used. And, and it's my very strong opinion that it's mostly used in a very detrimental way in this country. I think there are ways to use it beneficially overseas that's being done right now and maybe even beneficially in this country at some point. But right now, the way I kind of came down is that it's mostly used to support, as you said in your intro, big corporate industrial scale farming that is not healthy for our bodies and it's definitely not healthy for our land and water and air. Whereas overseas, you know, a lot of scientists, nonprofit university scientists are using this technology to create products that might be nutritionally beneficial or that can stand up to you know, insect infestations or pathogens or, you know, funguses, you name it. But that's not really what it's being used for in this country. Right now, it's mainly in this country being used to create like mountains and mountains of corn and soybeans, which is basically being used to create cheap, crappy hamburgers and cheap, crappy process and fast food. So the technology is what it is. It's how it's used that is really much more interesting, I think. Right. And that is a great point. And you are fighting the good fight, man. I mean, you do write about these positive aspects of GMOs in some cases, the noble scientific work that goes into improving crops resistance to certain viruses and insects and their tolerance to flood or drought. These are massively important aspects in a world where a lot of people are struggling to survive. And it's exactly the type of criticism that a lot of us face when we try to have this discussion with people. And it's what the corporations hide behind. I mean, what would you say to counter that big agro companies claim that their work is needed to feed the third world and fight global poverty. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that argument. I mean, I mean, I, I see it just like you see it. I see it all the time. And I think it is absolutely disingenuous. It's incorrect on a variety of levels. First of all, the crops that these companies are making are not designed for the third world. They're designed for us. 
they, in fact, the vast majority of the crops that they're growing are grown in the United States for American consumers or for our first world trading partners. So a big percentage of the stuff we're growing, we're talking about corn and soybeans or the meat that, you know, don't forget the corn and soybeans, something like 40% of it is being used to feed animals, meat animals like chickens and cows and pigs. So either we're talking about the corn and the soybeans or the animals that are fed the corn and the soybeans. This is either being consumed by Americans or it's being consumed by countries like Canada and countries in places like Central Europe. So that part of the food is not being sent to, as they say, poor, starving, you know, developing world people. So that's one falsehood. The other falsehood is these companies are not, in fact, investing huge amounts of money into the science and technology that these third world countries actually need. So like drought resistance or pesticide resistance or insect resistance or flood resistance, these kinds of things that these countries actually need, whether you're talking about sub-Saharan Africa or you're talking about places like India or other places in Asia where there are things like vitamin A deficiency. You probably heard about stuff called golden rice mm. is the process of taking a gene and putting it into a rice crop that turns the rice grain from white to orange and therefore has beta carotene in it, which allows especially young people, babies and, and young children to avoid vitamin A deficiency, which prevents juvenile blindness. Like that, that is a GMO project that, you know, plenty of people, ethical people think is a really cool idea. This is not, not research that be, is being done by these companies. So it's a kind of a double misleading marketing campaign. They say they need GMOs to feed the world because what they want, they know that the term GMO is a toxic term and people don't like it and they don't want it, not only in this country, but everywhere the, around the world. So what they're trying to say is GMOs are necessary to feed the world. But the reason that's not true is because the food they're growing isn't being used by the third world and the food that the third world needs is not being developed by these companies. So it's basically false on both fronts. And I, I get really tired of that. I mean, I see, like, even here on the East Coast, you'll see these, like, company-sponsored vans will pull up onto a college campus and give these, like, you know, teaching demonstrations about how GMOs are so critical to feeding the starving world. And it just drives me bananas because it's really misleading. It's a very effective, from their point of view, it's a very effective technique because then everybody's conflating, you know, GMOs with starving people. And who wouldn't want that? But those things are not actually connected. Those That's a, I mean... Work is being done for them, but not by these companies. So I think your question is really right on the money. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, like you noted, one half of 1% of American food exports actually goes to developing countries with dire food needs. And these companies are spending more money on the PR machine to quote unquote educate the population on what they're doing in these positive areas uh, than they are actually doing that stuff. It's just uh, another bait and switch from corporate America. You know, we've seen it before, but I did want to ask you a little bit more about the history here because we are in a fairly unique situation where the average American knows very little about growing food and where it comes from outside of the grocery store. We have very few family farms anymore, like you mentioned earlier, and we've given the power to take care of ourselves away to companies that don't really care about us outside of getting that green paper so what happened? How did our food supply become so centralized and out of our hands? Well, I'm glad you asked. That to me, like in, in all of this, this, this topic has so many little weird, interesting, you know, side streets. But the one that you just mentioned, to me, outside of the science and the politics, 
this is the most interesting kind of historical question. And this is the way that the book really essentially begins, which is weirdly describing the growth of the American interstate highway system. So just briefly, what happened after World War II is we came back from Europe where we had seen this horrendous German military machine moving troops and you know equipment around, especially the country of Germany, because they had these amazing Autobahn highways. So one of the first things that we did after the war as we came back and the military, it's important to remember on the government's dime, right, on the government's dime, built what is now known as the Eisenhower, right, the Eisenhower five-star interstate highway system. That's really interesting. So if, you, if you're driving down the interstates out where you are, you know, I-5 out here, 95, 70, 80, up and down, you notice the little signs with, the, with a five-star circle of the, of the interstate highway. That was, this, the interstate highway system was named after General Eisenhower, later President Eisenhower. So what that allowed to happen is that the highways got built primarily as what we would call now like a homeland security, a you know, defense mechanism to allow us to prevent you know, being invaded. That's the level of, of anxiety that we all had back then. Mm-hmm. So what happened was we built all these huge roads, which had never been built before. This country did not have interstate highways before the 1940s. So then what happened is this infrastructure of these super wide, big, beautiful roads, what that allowed to do happen is what many people know, do know about is that, you know, GIs coming back from the war suddenly started building houses out in the country. So everybody knows, anybody who's lived in, in the old city has watched. I live in Baltimore. If you think about Baltimore, Detroit, Philadelphia, you know, any of these big industrial cities, they emptied out, right? The death of the American city happened at the same time because when anybody who had any money after the war came back and they started going out on these highways and building houses out in the suburbs, like the American suburban landscape also essentially did not exist before World War II, like all the suburbs that we've seen. I know God knows in Southern California, you've seen this going like crazy. All those houses have been built since the 1940s. And the reason they were able to be built is because people could live in the country and then drive their car on these big, beautiful roads back into the city to work. So the whole 50s generation, think about all that stuff, the Mad Men era of, you know, the suburban schlepping into the city or the Jack Kerouac thing of driving around these highways. All this stuff is built on highway culture that sprang up at that time. So everyone, that's part of like the American story. We know that. But what, what we never thought, or at least I never thought, it was where were all those houses built? All those houses on the highway were built on former farms. Mm. So all through the United States, it used to be that you had cities and then right outside the city you had farms. And if you don't believe this, go to Europe where you'll see, you know, cities that are much older than American cities like Rome or Paris or Lyon or any of these big cities. You can still stand up on a tall building and see farms right outside the city. They still grow their own food. They feed their own people. Here, we built all these highways. Then we built all these houses. And then we turned around and realized that we had no farms. So something like since 1930, I think the number is something like four million small family farms disappeared. So if 4 million farms disappear, we've got all these houses on these former acres of farms. People still have to eat. So what happened to the food production? Well, all the food production moved. It all moved to the Midwest. And as these small family farms closed, the the big industrial scale farms started to grow and grow and grow. They started to consolidate. They started to become under the control, as you mentioned earlier, of, of fewer and fewer companies. And the entire American food system grew out of this. So now you had giant farms providing huge amounts of very few 
numbers of grain. So we're talking, again, mainly about soy and corn and wheat. And then these food processors cropped up to turn those three things into tons and tons and tons of different kinds of processed food. So everything from junk food, all the stuff that's in the middle of the supermarket is all made from these three grains. Or you feed it to this incredibly enormous industrial meat system. Americans eat something like 9 billion animals. It can be fed grain that is grown below the cost of production, right? We'll get in later to the whole government subsidy thing, but the government got in big time into supporting these giant farms. And the entire American food system got built on top of this. So it really all starts, in my view, with the buildings of the highways, then the buildings of the suburbs, and then the disappearance of the farms, and then the migration of food production out to the Midwest. And then we get the last 30, 40, 50 years worth of incredibly crappy processed food that, as you've probably heard, the average piece of food drives something like 1,500 miles from the place where it's grown to the place where it's eaten, which has created a whole constellation of other problems, including climate change, because the agricultural system is one of the primary drivers of greenhouse gases because it's so intensive and the fossil fuels that it uses to ship all this stuff all over the place instead of getting it where we used to from local farms back, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Mm. Yeah, that is a great breakdown. I really do like to reverse engineer how we got into the mess we are in and, and look back at all the different bullet points of how we got here and who's been responsible along the way. It's just so interesting. And Another aspect of the history that I found really troubling that also kind of ties into World War II is when you talk about these chemical companies and poisons like Agent Orange that were made in huge supply during wartime. And then like any good corporation, you got to find a way to sell that when the war is over and it's poison. So what could you do but remarket it as herbicides and pesticides? And then these dangerous chemicals like 2,4-D, they end up in the food we eat. I mean we really should be considering a source that might be a bit better, shouldn't we? Well, I think that's a really important point. And it's it's one of the amazing facts. I mean, one of the, this is a weird thing to say, but my favorite, that is to say, creepy fascinations with all this stuff is how, you know, these things that we're talking about are both totally everywhere and totally invisible at the same time, which is a really bizarre paradox. But if you mm -hmm. think about what you just said, these companies which we haven't even named yet. We might as well name them, right? Monsanto, sure. DuPont, Dow Chemical, Bayer, BASF, Syngenta. You know, several of these are American companies. Bayer and BASF are German companies. Syngenta is a Swiss company. You will not see the name Monsanto or DuPont or Dow or BASF on a piece of food that you're eating. But they are, you know, we think of them as chemical companies, but they are some of the big, they are the world's biggest chemical companies, but they are also weirdly, some of the world's biggest seed companies. So, you know, you when you're reverse engineering, you say something like, don't you think we ought to be concerned that the biggest chemical companies in the world are also the ones that are providing us with our food? And that like doesn't even like, people would never even grok that. They're like, what are you talking about? And you're absolutely right that these companies, almost all of them started out as like munitions companies, like they made dynamite or they made chemical weapons during World War II. Certainly, they made chemical weapons during Vietnam. And as you correctly point out, when war is no longer, you know, war is a huge economic engine. But when the war is over, you're left with these stockpiles of chemicals and you got to find new markets for them. So as you point out, you know, Agent Orange was used in Vietnam to defoliate jungles. When that war ends, they look for new markets. They find out that they can sell it 
not only to farmers, but also to homeowners. So you can walk into any hardware store, any Home Depot, and you can buy 2,4-D right now. And 2,4-D during Vietnam was, you know, half of Agent Orange. Now, to be honest, to be fair, it wasn't the worst half. The other half, 2,4-5-T, was much worse and has been banned. But 2,4-D was a big part of Agent Orange, and you can buy buy it in any hardware store. And, and I know people that I interviewed for the other book, Contamination, that are professional landscapers that have given up the use of these chemicals because they got so sick. And they're like, it's insane that we allow, you know, non-professional, just regular old homeowners to walk into a hardware store and buy these chemicals. They're, they're marketed as safe, which is a lie. And then these people have no idea what quantities or, or, or how often or when to use them. They massively overuse them. And as you point out, then the first time it rains, all this stuff ends up in our drinking water, in our streams, gets into the fish in our creeks. It means that this is part of the reason we can't, none of one in our country can even swim in our bodies of water because they're so contaminated with all this stuff. So 2,4-D is one that, that people ought to know about. You should look for it in a hardware store and avoid it. And another one is called glyphosate, which is the ingredient in, in the most common herbicide in the world called Roundup, which people can also buy in any hardware store. And it's, you know, it's marketed as like a so-called benign herbicide, right? It is, in fact, less toxic than other things, but that's not to say it's non-toxic. The World Health Organization recently described glyphosate or Roundup as a probable, that is to say not possible, but a probable human carcinogen, meaning it probably causes cancer. And yet we're spraying it all over the place. I mean, it drives me bananas in the springtime to see the trucks driving up and down the neighborhood spraying Roundup on everything. It's no secret that this is a problem. Now court documents are starting to show up saying that the company probably knew that these things were more dangerous than they were, they let on. And we're starting to see kind of that tobacco industry dynamic start to play itself out again, where we're understanding now the public health consequences of basically taking our eye off, off the ball with all these chemicals because these companies have been so powerful and so secretive for so long. Right. And the, the tobacco issue is such a great case study of how this stuff works, how big money totally manipulates public opinion and education and how doctors are willing to sell their integrity out for a few bucks. I mean, if they're going to get paid, they might as well tell you it's going to be good. And if once that's happened and it's been so transparent, you really have to be more careful about blindly trusting anyone who once told you cigarettes were good. But just to get back to the, the GMOs, are they safe question, there are a lot of ways to alter food. And in many cases, it's the chemicals and pesticides rather than the genetic modification itself that's the problem. And I actually think there might be uh, a subset of issues where these chemical companies are actually hiding behind the larger umbrella of GMOs because it's hard to isolate the issue of the pesticides if you're propagandizing people to look at a much bigger issue. You can kind of hide within there, but that's its own thing. So I'm curious, what types of alterations do you think we should be most concerned about? Or where do you see the biggest problems specifically on these issues? Well, you're really, you're asking excellent questions and, and these are really getting at the heart of things. So I, I want to not get away from your first question too quickly before we get to the second one. This, this idea of hiding behind GMO safety to masquerade the harm of chemicals. So in, just in case your, your listeners are not aware of this, the vast majority of global scientists that have studied GMOs, I'm talking about GMOs. Now, at this moment, I'm not talking about the chemicals. I'm talking about only about the GMOs. They say that GMOs are not harmful for human consumption. Now, the first thing that anti-GMO people will say is that's BS. I don't buy that. I don't believe it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But 
I'm just telling you that the fact is, like it or not, that the vast, I'm talking about like mid 90% of scientists that have studied genetically altered plants say that eating a genetically altered plant is not a health problem. Now, as long as you keep that sentence right there, then, you know, we're good. That's fine. I believe that. I have no problem with that. But as you mentioned, the problem with many of these GMO crops, especially the ones that are used in such huge quantities, they are actually literally designed to be sprayed with chemicals. They're not planted unless they are also sprayed with these chemicals. So saying that a GMO is safe and then spraying the crop with a known or a probable carcinogen is, again, entirely disingenuous. It's saying this thing is safe and not acknowledging that the thing that is married to that thing is not safe. So I think that point is really worth making clear. Like if you say, oh, you know, it's, it's GMO soybeans, GMOs are safe. Well, if you're not including the fact that GMO soybeans are sprayed with probable human carcinogens, then you're not actually asking the right question. Or if you want to think of it from the company's point of view, they would desperately like the conversation to end with the fact that GMOs are safe. Because that means that, as you mentioned earlier, they don't have to bring up the question of the whole reason that there are GMOs. In fact, they're very cynical critics of this that say that GMOs were actually designed as a vector to sell more chemicals. In other words, if you have all these chemical stockpiles, like you mentioned earlier, you're trying to figure out ways to push them out on the market. So it doesn't hurt to create a seed that you can plant and spray it with all these stockpiles of chemicals and have it effectively kill everything else except the crop that you're planting. I mean, it's an ingenious, you know, selling idea. And as long as you limit the conversation to the GMO thing and not bring up the question of the chemicals, then you can, in this sort of fake honesty, say GMOs are safe, but you're not asking the whole question. So I think that's really important to cement. So yeah, I think your second question was, you know, which which of these genetic alterations should we be worried about? And, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you what the scientists told me, which is that, you know, the pro-GMO scientists, you'll hear this repeatedly, they will say that altering a plant genetically in a laboratory is no different than hybridization techniques that we've been using for 10,000 years. So, you know, go all the way back to the beginning of our agricultural process. And think about, you know, some prehistoric farmer planting a bunch of maize. Let's say he's in, in Mexico somewhere and he plants a bunch of seeds. And, you know, this plant grows to be three feet high and this other plant grows to be two feet high. Which plant is he going to gather the seeds from to plant the next year? He'll take the ones from the strongest, most productive plant. You do that over and over and over and over again. And eventually you're going to hybridize and select for the very most productive plants that you can. So you know, what you will often hear scientists say is that the corn that we eat today looks nothing like the corn that was, you know, prehistorically native to Central America. And that's absolutely true. Like everything that we eat now, everything that we eat now has been hybridized or has been selected for beneficial properties. So you'd name it tomatoes and carrots and everything else. It's all been altered. So that's true. And as far as that goes, they are they are absolutely right about that. Then the question is, does your instinct, does your gut, does your intuition, whatever you say, agree with that statement that, you know, getting into a laboratory for six or eight weeks or a couple of months or whatever it is and cranking something out really speedily and turning out a new genetically altered plant, is that the same as evolution or the same as generations of farmers slowly, season by season, 
hybridizing and selecting. And, you know, people have different points of view about that. I don't think that there's any danger in eating the genetically altered plants. I don't particularly intuitively like the idea of eating something that has been so cranked up in, the, in its kind of evolutionary process. You know, these scientists will always say it's just like nature only faster. But to me, that is like counterintuitive because nature isn't fast, right? That's part of the way that nature works. Nature works very slowly and methodically. And over time, things adapt, you know, and, and change and mutate, but over long periods of time. The thing that, you know, anybody, I, mean, I know you've done probably many programs about technology on your program, this, you know, obsession that we have with technology being a fix, like a, you know, a reliable fix for every problem that we have or every problem that we create is ludicrous, in my opinion. You know, the, the cliche is that every generation of technology really is invented to fix the problems created by the previous generation of technology. So, like, finding new ways to invent ways to eat does not strike me as the very best use of our intelligence. I mean, in some cases it might be. But I'm not looking for the, you know, the, the fastest way to get another bag of corn chips, you know, which is basically what we're looking at right now. Right. And well said. This, of course, gets into a lot of the stuff you have in your plain Prometheus chapter, that this kind of stuff is way more complex than people really realize, or there is a lot of human arrogance in thinking that you can meddle with the natural process and everything's going to be all right. And one issue is that even if there is complete integrity in the lab testing, which we know there really isn't in every case, labs are isolated and they don't always reflect effects on a complex real world environment. Right. So, you know, this is where you get ecologists, you know, there's a there's a new kind of subdiscipline called agroecology, which is, you know, people trying to apply the wisdom of ecology to the growing of food. So right now what we have is most of our industrial crops are grown on these enormous monoculture farms. So you have a farm of, you know, 10,000 acres of nothing but a single kind of plant, corn. You know, there's so many problems with that. Like, sure, it is absolutely undeniably true that we can grow, what is it now, 200 bushels of corn on a single acre of land. That's great. It's super efficient. They're growing tons and tons of calories on very little land. That That is true. They have accomplished that. And then they have to ask the question, like, how did they accomplish that? At what cost did they accomplish that? Well, that 200 bushels per acre requires enormous petrochemical inputs of things like fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and stuff like that. It also requires, if you're going to grow monoculture crops, monoculture means nothing else grows except the one crop you're growing. So for example, if you were spraying, you know, thousands or in this case, millions of acres of soybeans with an herbicide that kills everything except the soybean, one of the things that's going to die is milkweed. Now, milkweed, I don't know if your listeners are hip to this. They probably are because you guys are close enough to Mexico to know about this. But the monarch butterfly has this glorious migration from Mexico all across North America. And monarch butterfly populations have crashed. There's something at like 4% of their normal population. And the reason for that is because we have wiped out all of their food. And milkweed is what they eat. So milkweed is a weed. It grows, you know, it's a very beautiful plant, actually, you know, especially when it's in flower. And, you know, the caterpillars eat the leaves and the adults eat the, the pollen. And, you know, there you are. They've got a perfect system. And when you eliminate all the milkweed because you're spraying herbicides to support your soybeans, the milkweed disappears and monarch butterflies collapse. So that's a byproduct of this 
this food system that we've got. So the technology that we're so obsessed with can, in fact, achieve very isolated goals that may be extremely profitable, but they have what are known as like these cascading problems that come down from it. So spraying herbicides on monoculture kills the, the monarch butterfly population. That stuff runs off into our water, so we have drinking water contamination. You know, we spray this stuff so the soil is dying. Like, what you, you talk to agroecologists, and they'll talk about the greatest resource that any farmer has is the health of their soil, not the health of their crops, but the health of the soil. And American soil is wrecked. It has been so chemically addicted now for so long that it is barren. And this is a problem. I mean, we, you, there's only so many years that you can continually blast the soil to crank out you know, these, these petrochemical reliant monoculture crops. I should bring up, there's another chapter in the book that talks about a guy in Kansas. His name is Wes Jackson. He runs something called the Land Institute, which is an incredibly cool, I think someday Nobel Prize winning kind of agricultural research. And he says, this guy, Wes Jackson, is not only a genius scientist, but he's one of the great philosophers you'll ever talk to. And he says, as we mentioned earlier, the 10,000-year experiment we've had with agriculture has been a problem since day one. And the reason for that is that farmers early on put all their chips in not just monoculture, but most importantly, annual crops. So like I mentioned earlier, the corn thing, like you can continually upgrade your corn, make your corn more and more productive year by year by year. But what has happened is we threw in so hard with annual crops that have to be planted and harvested and tilled up every single year that we have destroyed all kinds of natural systems, systems of soil, systems of water through irrigation. Like I said before, the climate has been massively impacted by this. And what he's trying to do in, out in Kansas is come up with what he's called perennial polyculture. Perennial polyculture would be to take a field and model a food production field on, in his case, a prairie. So a prairie in Kansas has many, many, many different kinds of plants all interacting with each other, some of them fixing nitrogen out of the air, some of them shielding out weeds, some of them attracting pollinators. All these plants interact beneficially with each other and have evolved to do just that. So if you could hybridize, now this guy, he does not use GMOs. He's doing traditional plant breeding. But if you could create a food system that had multiple plants all functioning with each other, you could reduce runoff, you could reduce water use, you could reduce herbicides and pesticides because they're helping each other. You could reduce the use of fertilizer because you know you have nitrogen fixtures in among those crops. So it's almost like the old three sisters model that we learned from Native Americans where you have, you know, one plant is providing nitrogen, one plant is providing shade, one plant is providing you know, vertical altitude for the for the beans to climb up, you know, that is a system that is sustainable, was sustainable for many, many, many thousands of years. And what do we have? We have a system that has burned itself out in about 50 years. So what we're doing is not working. It's producing a ton of food, but it is not working in the long run. And this is what we need to be turning our attention to. Yeah, man, I actually loved that section of the book, that possible solution of perennials and mimicking prairies and you talk about biomimicry in this area alone could eliminate half of the soil erosion and nine billion a year just in the tilling equipment used to make the soil usable it just seems like so ridiculous that they don't do it but these companies are so huge they don't pivot easily they're so one track mind with their playbook that's been in place for quite some time they just don't change their ways even 
if something like this, even if they see that it's kind of a dead end road. But I'm also curious, you mentioned all the corn and soybean is GMO. Obviously, that's mainly what we grow. But I find it interesting that with as much wheat as we grow in America, it isn't GMO. Why hasn't wheat become genetically modified like the rest of the crops in America? Well, you know, that's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think a lot of people, me included, are surprised to hear that wheat is not GMO. In other words, you, you can buy bread and safely know that it is not genetically modified. And that doesn't stand a reason, like it doesn't make any sense because all the same companies are, you know, involved in wheat production just as they are with the others. And my sense is that the reason there's no GMO wheat is that the public distaste for GMOs is so strong and so visceral that the companies that were thinking about introducing GMO wheat got really gun shy. And I will tell you that GMO wheat has been invented. I mean, it's you know ready to be planted. But there have been some cases where they planted experimental plots of GMO wheat, and some of it blew onto non, you know, non-experimental wheat crops and got mixed up with non-GMO wheat. And the farmers and the consumers went bananas. They just like this is not cool. We're not going to allow this to happen. And so, you know, it wasn't regulated out of existence. It was just market-driven out of, or at least market-driven, put on hold. So. This is an interesting story. It's not wheat. In fact, it's about GMO rice, which has also been invented and is is out there. And rice is also a major global crop. Obviously, even in the United States, we don't think of it as an American crop, but it's a huge crop here. I think it was in Missouri that they wanted to start doing some experiments with GMO rice. And if I recall correctly, it was Anheuser-Busch, you know, the great big corporate brewer found out that GMO rice was going to be grown near where they were growing rice for the beer that they make. And they put up such a fuss. They said, if you allow GMO rice to get into this state, in other words, they were so paranoid about GMO rice blowing into their non-GMO rice and somehow getting into their beer, that they said, if you allow this GMO rice, we're going to move our breweries out of state. And, you know, Missouri would not be too happy if Anheuser-Busch left the state, right? Because it's like a brand very much associated with that state. So my sense of it was that the anxiety about the prospect of GMO rice getting into a product like Budweiser, uh, you know, that gives you some evidence about the anxiety of GMOs. If a major beer company is so freaked out about the prospect of people boycotting beer because it's got GMOs in it, that tells you some of the anxiety that I think is at play also with the wheat which is they it seems to me that these companies are reading the marketplace and seeing that it's not ready for another major introduction of GMO that like the corn and the soybeans kind of slipped into our system before people really knew what was going on it got so entrenched that there was no undoing it but i don't think that they they have the stomach for introducing uh, GMO wheat just now mm. those are great points and that does actually give us some positive hope that Public opinion does mean something to these companies if it's going to affect their money. And you mentioned subsidies earlier, and we should elaborate on that. I mean, what should be said about the subsidy aspect or other areas where government is actually exacerbating the problem? Well, you know, I I tend to kind of be like a structural thinker. To me, the symptoms of of this issue, like the symptoms of other big complex issues, are not really where we should be focusing our attention. We should be focusing our attention on the structures that allow all the symptoms to, to occur. Amen. So what we have are, if you think back on the, the stuff we talked about with the highways and the farms and 
the centralization of power and money in these companies, these companies, as you point out, have become so big and so profitable that logically, you know, the, the way that the, our, our economic system works is that money and power gravitates towards Washington. So when these companies want something, they have very effective and very well-financed lobbying arms in Washington, and they get the policy that they want, whether the policy is about agriculture, if we're talking about agriculture, whether it's policy about regulating chemicals, whether it's a policy about regulating fracking, whatever you're talking about, the companies that we're talking about are huge and profitable, and they have enormous influence in Washington. So when people complain about federal subsidies for food companies or seed companies or chemical companies, the reason that that happens is because these companies have such influence in the halls of power in Congress and in the White House. And this is, I, I hate to say this, but this is very much true regardless of who the, is in power. Like it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or Republican, the same dynamics have been at play for decades. In fact, really, uh, at least in, since the 1970s, if you think about like the president who, who started the EPA, weirdly enough, was Richard Nixon, who not only was a Republican, but he was not an environmental guy in the least. But he started the EPA because there were like rivers burning in, in Ohio, you know, like he, it was so bad and Earth Day had happened and he basically felt like he had to do something. So he started the EPA. But since the day, since the beginning of the EPA, the EPA has been totally, as they say, captured by industry. I, I, another book I wrote called Poison Spring was, was co-written with the guy who worked at the EPA for 25 years. And we talk about how from the very get-go, like the minute the EPA was started and we were going to focus, you know, regulate regulatory energy in Washington, companies realized that that was where the real battles were going to be fought. So what has happened for 40 years is that we have seen companies stuff these agencies with their own people. So like these agencies, whether they're talking about the EPA, the USDA, the FDA, they're kind of split because they have like lifetime career people that are there no matter who's in power. Like you can be a scientist there for 30, 40 years, whatever. But then you have political appointees at the top of these agencies. So new administration comes in, they put their own people in charge of it, like this new secretary, the new you know director, all the sub-directors, all the, the political appointees are, are what are layered on top of these agencies and all the staff people live there regardless of who's coming into power. So what you have is you have this culture where the staff people are doing legitimate work, right? Not political work, do legitimate science and policy. And then their research percolates up until it hits the glass ceiling of the political appointees. So most recently, I mean, we saw this in a very vivid way recently with the Trump administration. Before all these scandals with Russia was happening, a big one that occurred about a month ago was an agricultural chemical known as chlorpyrifos, which is known to cause, if you can believe this, right, it's known to cause brain damage in children, right? So like what could possibly be more of a poster for regulation? So the EPA had been working on regulating this chemical for some time. And then the Trump administration came in and Scott Pruitt, the EPA director, said, you know what, we're not going to focus on that anymore. And basically drop kicked the whole chlorpyrifos regulatory impulse, you know, out of sight. So now that this known cause of brain damage in children is not going to rise to the level of actually being regulated. Now, why do you suppose that happened? It happened because you have a very powerfully industry friendly guy who is running the EPA. 
So people who've been doing the research for a long time get the stuff to bubble up to the political level where these decisions have to be made, and then it gets killed. And this happens over and over and over again. So when people get pissed about subsidies on one hand, in other words, huge you know rivers of money going to these companies, or the lack of regulation, and they get all angry at government, you know, I, I've ne- never, my energy has never been directed at government. It's always been directed at the companies who control government. And I basically have come to believe that government is essentially a puppet of these companies. Now, not, not everyone in government is like this, but I'm talking the way that the power structure actually functions. It is controlled by private industry. And no matter what we're talking about, what industry they have their your hands around the neck of these regulatory agencies, which by the way, I, I'll, I'm kind of rambling here, but this is why some of the most effective work against this stuff happens at the state level or even smaller government because these companies can't control the states the way they can control the feds. I mean, they can still control the states to some level, but they can't control them the way they can control Congress. They control Congress absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is all well said. And I agree with uh, your assessment of government just being used as a tool. Of course, I was a teenage anarchist, but you grow up a little bit and you realize that's not a very nuanced or mature way to look at things. And maybe it's the centralization, not necessarily government itself, that creates a lot of these problems. You talk about the fact that these food companies and these chemical companies want to keep the conversation in the federal government so they can make blanket laws that affect all 50 states where if we had more state power, they'd have to go and fight these individual battles. And that would really, really hurt their business. And so maybe that's something we should consider. But and it is it is also a shame about that EPA issue you brought up. But these regulatory agencies are also a false sense of security because you talk about the 88,000 or so chemicals that are just in our culture, not only in food, but in consumer products. And so few of them have actually gone through rigid testing. And ones who have, a lot of times it's internal studies, which is a huge conflict of interest. So, I mean, I don't know. It's it's just a, a tangled web because you don't obviously want to get rid of regulatory agencies, but just their presence there being so toothless causes so many people to use these products willy-nilly because they think, oh, it's been handled, it's been solved, it must be safe. Yeah, I I mean, I've never quite said it that way, but I think that's probably the best way to say it, which is these agencies in a way, I mean, you really just like lit a light bulb for me. Like in a way, these agencies are making the problem worse because they are giving people a false sense that there's somebody actually looking out for them. Like you, you know, if you buy a product, at least most people intuitively think either the company will prevent them from buying something harmful or the government will. And the truth is that neither is true. But, you know, you can be hoodwinked into thinking that because there's such a thing, I mean, you can even have a product with an EPA stamp on it and that is supposed to make you feel good. But if you know how the, how the EPA actually worked, like you, you should be kind of more skeptical <laughs> because, you know, just because there's an EPA stamp of approval uh, it does not give you any sense or shouldn't give you any sense that it's actually been, you know, credibly tested. You mentioned the chemicals out of the 80,000 chemicals that are in use today. I think something like 200 have been ever tested for any health consequences, which like you can't even you literally you do do a pie chart sometime with that. And that little sliver of 200 over 80,000 does not even show up. 
doesn't even show up. And I think only out of 80,000, I think only about seven chemicals have actually ever been banned, DDT being one of them, famously. And you know what happened with DDT, right? DDT was like one of the most common insecticides. And then Rachel Carson, thank God, like blew that whole thing up with Silent Spring. This is one of the most vivid examples of this, but the bald eagle itself, right? The the American icon of whatever it represents, strength and independence, all that was literally on the verge of extinction because of one chemical, DDT, which, you know, what happened is it got into their hormone system. And when the mama birds went to sit on their nest, their endocrine reproductive system had been so messed up by DDT, they'd sit on their eggs and the eggs would break because the shells were so thin. So you had generations of eagles that could not reproduce because of DDT. We banned DDT, and now the East Coast, like I take my students canoeing up and down the East Coast. We see bald eagles every single time we go out, right? There's so many bald eagles now that they're actually like showing up in bird rehab centers because they're fighting over hunting and nesting space, right? They're like completely come back, Hmm. and it's because of one chemical. Now, there are 80,000 out there. You know, so we can we can talk about that later, but that that's a whole another can of worms. Oh man, I, I like that story specifically because of the irony of damaging the bald eagle. I mean, how un-American! You got a company like Monsanto making DDT, probably sponsoring sporting events where people are standing up, waving an American flag, singing the national anthem, and this very company is killing off the bald eagle. I mean, it doesn't get more uh, ironic than that. But well, look, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be interested in this, but I just had a senior thesis student who wrote a whole piece about what's called pink washing, which is like, you know, telling the NFL players to wear pink cleats and all that nonsense. And she got so exercised. She's like, you know, these companies that are sponsoring all this breast cancer awareness stuff, they're making products that cause cancer, right? They're like cosmetics companies that have known carcinogens in their products. And yet they're, you know, they're putting out all this pink you know, pink bats for Major League Baseball and pink cleats. I just think football <laughs> players wearing pink cleats is one of the most ridiculous things. And you know what? She told me, I'd never heard this before, but I think there was a, I don't know if he was a basketball player or football player. He told the league, he's like, look, my mom has breast cancer and I want to wear whatever it was, pink cleats or pink wristbands all year. And the, whichever sport it was like said, no, you can only do it on the one day. Like the whole thing has gotten so compromised by this corporate, you know, the, the pink thing which people sort of vaguely feel good about is still like we've talked about in other contexts is allowing companies to hide behind the fact that they're making stuff that causes cancer, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, it's embarrassing really. Like the irony of that is just embarrassing. Yeah, man, it is. That's, that's a great point. And we really have just been bombarded with so much at once that we really just don't know what causes what. And you have a great quote from a plant biologist from Miami University in Ohio, Alfredo Herta, I believe is how you pronounce it. He says, we tend to blow off the reason for a migraine or an ill feeling or the little things we can't identify. Who knows if any of those are hidden symptoms from some encounter with chemicals in the food or GMOs or any of these things. And that is a great point. We have all these little quirks. I mean, how hard was it to reverse engineer the fragility of bald eagle eggs and assess it to DDT? I mean, we get all kinds of little things in our body. We don't feel good this day. Our stomach hurts, our head hurts. And who knows? Who knows where it's coming from? But it is a great point that we should look at that stuff and consider the connection more carefully. Yeah, I mean, I I really like that point. I mean, if you think about 
like the the idea of ecology in the broadest sense like ecology is the study of how systems function so if you think about like how do you convince a guy who is spraying ddt on his lawn that a bald eagle that lives like 10 miles away that he's never seen and never will see that his spraying of the lawn has killed the babies or the eggs of that eagle well he'll never understand that until he understands that the, the ddt that goes on the grass or into his woods or whatever it is when it rains it goes into the creek when it goes into the creek it gets saturated into microorganisms that get eaten by bigger things which get eaten by bigger and bigger and bigger things until it bioaccumulates up the food chain into a big old fish that a bald eagle then comes and eats and then the bald eagle goes digest this and now all these bioaccumulated chemicals are now in the bald eagle's body and therefore when she lays the egg the egg cracks that's ecology right that's eco that's a system way of thinking about things but there's no way that the, you know the ignorant person who is i mean i don't mean ignorant is a pejorative i mean literally like the unknowing person can connect this with something that is like 25 steps down the ecological chain so I think what Alfredo Huerta's point is, is that our bodies are also ecological systems. So if you eat something, you know, it is going to percolate through your body. And the percolating, the thing that is percolating through your body is also percolated through the actual world, right? It is connected, despite the fact that you've never seen it, right? As we talked about early, you may never have seen the fact that this potato was growing in dirt somewhere and was sprayed with something and was then harvested and shipped and it finally became a french fry and then you know whatever it was boiled in gmo canola oil or whatever it is and finally you eat it that's a system so somewhere along the line if that system is being compromised by genetic engineering if you want to think of it that way or certainly by chemicals if you want to think about it that way that that is going to enter the system and how that then interacts with your own very complicated ecosystem of your body you know the gut biome is like this entire universe of mystery just to begin with like how all the bacteria beneficial and not beneficial all these bacteria how they're interacting with you and the food that's coming in that's it like we're just beginning to understand what's going on there to say nothing of then you know you eat this and you process and then what are these chemicals whether they're hormone disruptors whether they're carcinogens whether they're endocrine disruptors or you know, reproductive problem causing chemicals, how they interact with your own biology, your own hormone system, your own cells. I mean, all this stuff is extremely mysterious, which allows skeptics to dismiss it, right? They're like, oh, you know, you can't prove that. How do you prove to me that drinking water out of that water bottle, right, which has, you know, BPA plastic in it, how are you able to prove that that is what caused you to get some kind of health problem? And of course, you can't because you can't connect a single act of consumption with a single illness like that is never well who knows it is it, not currently provable but if you take the systems approach then you have to raise these questions the thing that i think alfredo huerta was mentioning is that even though wheat is not gmo wheat is still very frequently sprayed with glyphosate roundup right before it's harvested because it, the glyphosate is also used as a what's called a desiccant it dries out the seed head of wheat crops right and they do that right before Harvest. So even though wheat's not GMO, it's still being sprayed with this chemical often used on GMOs right before harvest. So if you, you know, you develop some kind of GI problem and you attribute it to wheat, who knows if it's actually attributable to the glyphosate? You know, your body is your body reacts to everything. So this is all very complicated. And this is why 
you know, we started out talking about the general level of ignorance and alienation. When that is true, that's true even when things are simple. Wait till things get complicated and then it's, you know, impossible to connect these dots. Right, right. And to wind this down with a little positivity and to talk about some solutions that might move us in the right direction, you mentioned the experiments that you did with your students. I mean, the uh, program you have going. But is there more you can tell us about that and maybe how it actually affected the students who've partaken in it? Well, remind me which one you're talking about. I've, I've had students working on farms, for example, where they're trying, trying to connect with local food. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, as we talked about all through this, my strong sense is that these structural problems are really where you, you need to go to get real solutions. Not tell. I mean, I, it actually, I have to tell you, drives me crazy when a student walks into my class at the beginning of the semester and I say to them, like, what do you think caring for the environment means? And they say, oh, recycling. And I'm like, like, that is like the tiniest, tiniest, you know, snowflake on the top of the iceberg. Like, I don't, I really don't want to talk about recycling. What I want to talk about is structures, like not only economic structures, but also structures of knowing. Like, how do you know what you know? And are you aware of what you don't know, for example? So the whole food system thing, like instead of just raging about GMOs and big companies and big government, can you tell me where a potato grows? And some kid will raise their hand and say, like, I think they grow on trees, huh. you know, and you're like, OK, well, let's start with that. <laughs> let's start with that. Like the fact that you you eat potatoes all the time and you've never seen one, obviously. And you say, well, they don't grow on trees. They actually grow in the ground. And then they're like, oh, gross. You I mean, there's dirt on potatoes. It's like when you realize that that's where you're starting from, you realize that you've got a whole lot more to work on than just putting this plastic bottle in that blue container instead of the green container or whatever it is. So my solution to this or my effort at this is not just to do book learning in the class, but to also take them to farms and have them actually work on farms. And the other big thing I do is I take them on river trips. So the Susquehanna River is this beautiful, one of the oldest rivers in the world. In fact, the Susquehanna River was a river before Pangaea broke up, right? It was, it was here when the world was one landmass. Still, it's like one of the most beautiful rivers on the East Coast. We go paddle on that thing, and it, it drains a whole lot of agricultural land. And we sit there, and we water test and find out, like, what's in this water? This is like a main trunk line. This, this Susquehanna River is actually what becomes the Chesapeake Bay. And we test it, and it's like, well, what's in this water? And what creatures are here, and what creatures aren't here? And what about those four hydroelectric dams that are generating what they call green energy, but have also completely compromised migratory fish? You know, so we, we take a good hard look at all these structural systematic things and try to ask deeper questions and not where to put the bottle. Mm. Right. So you, I, my idea is that I want to get 19 and 20 year olds to start thinking structurally so that they know enough to ask the right questions and don't waste their time asking all the wrong questions. Mm. Beautiful, man. Well, again, I think both contamination and Food Fight are great books. They're rational, well laid out, and I'd recommend them really as ammunition for any listeners who might have people in their lives who still don't see the problems because you make a great balanced case that is really just hard to argue against. And from one college dropout to a college professor, I have learned a lot. But before we go, would you mind filling the people in on anything else you got going on, your website, future projects, all that good stuff? Sure. So my website is just my name, McKayJenkins.com, and there, there's plenty of information there about talks that I give, 
interviews I've given, articles. I've written quite a few little pieces on these uh, larger books. That's it. And oh, the, you know, I mentioned the book Poison Spring is the, the third in the sort of trilogy. That's the book about the EPA and these companies trying to influence policy in Washington. But those three books together are my best effort to try to paint this picture. But I, I also want to thank you for asking me. You may be a college dropout, but you ask questions that are better than, than almost any I've gotten. So thank you for your interest and for you know being so perceptive about what I think are really the real issues here. Awesome. I appreciate that, man. Well, McKay, it has been a real pleasure. Keep doing what you do out there. We're lucky to have a guy like you in the education system. So big thanks again and keep it up, man. Hey, thanks a lot. It's been great talking to you. Right on. Holy hell, people. McKay Jenkins bringing it in a big way. Man, I thought that one went really well. Because a lot of the time we do need to cut through some of the noise and get into the details. And I hope that was appreciated. I know it got a little thorny right out of the gate talking about GMOs and trying to define exactly where we thought the problem was. I know a lot of people have really black and white ideas on these things, and they just can't stand to hear something like, not all GMOs are bad. And I bet a few dozen people did shut the show off at that point. And it's a shame, because they would have missed the real meat and actually hurt their ability to make strong arguments in the face of real opposition. I know we talked about it in the episode, but if you think about the idea that, broadly speaking, a lot of the topics we discuss don't get into the mainstream, Yet, the GMO conversation does, all the time. Yet, the pesticides and chemicals conversation makes it on the nightly news quite a bit less, I'd say. So, there's the indication to me that we have a real problem that has hidden itself inside a broader subject matter, like a lead-painted Russian nesting doll. And I hope that point is clear. I'm not a GMO apologist. I just think we might be playing into the enemy's hands a little bit by letting them frame the conversation the way they have. And something that I always circle back to with this show, because I do have so many friends who think I'm crazy conspiracy guy, is that I want to get deeper into information so that we have actual things to say when we get in these conversations. And I love that we got into the history early on, the swapping out of farmland for suburban strip malls. <laughs> Ouch. And if you live in a suburb, you know, outside of housing, What's there is 90% corporate options for food, for car maintenance, for a goddamn haircut. There is like no soul in that, if you ask me. And I'm sort of just rambling. But I guess my point is that I don't want to come off as a militant, radical, fringe conspiracy nut who can't have a rational conversation because that's how a lot of people think of us. Thanks to Alex Jones and how the conspiracy archetype has been presented over the years. So these become some of my favorite episodes because the perception is that we run around shouting these wild statements and accusations, but if you get into the details with us, the arguments all fall flat, and exactly the opposite is true if you take time to learn the details. So do throw out a thank you to McKay if you can. We're lucky to have a guy like him teaching in the university system. We should support that and show him appreciation. Maybe give his book to your close-minded parents because it's going to get through to them a lot better than something with a skull and flames on the cover that's going for that sensationalist perspective, which I appreciate too. Different strokes for different folks. And as you know by now, the Higher Side Chats gets by because I put out the first hour of the show for free, hoping that you'll sign up for the second, where the conversation naturally gets deeper and you learn a lot more. And in today's second hour, we got into the B. Armageddon, legal food battles fought in Hawaii and Maine, how we could possibly go back to the old ways, 
other toxins in our culture, particularly how bad it is in the largely unregulated cosmetics industry, safety regulations in other countries versus America, restoring the true picture of pre-colonial America. You know I like that ever since Shaman Janir. Well, McKay's actually into that too and brings that up in his classroom, which is pretty cool to hear. And we talked about random things like lawns, astroturf, and water bottles, and changes that maybe should be made in those areas. A lot of stuff from his older book, Contamination. But sign up if you've become a regular listener of the show, because you are missing half of it. And in a time where a lot of people in my kind of position are suffering because they depended on AdSense revenue, which is now being taken away, I said, no, we don't need advertisers. I want to have a one-on-one relationship with the listeners, and I'm going to learn how to build a technical infrastructure to do that. And I am very lucky, and I hope, even though we haven't met, that you appreciate the way I did it, and out of respect for that, will support this thing. I've been so much more fortunate than a lot of other personalities in this genre, but I hope that some of that is based on the very conscious things that I do try to do to take this genre forward a little bit. Remember when we did the money bomb, we were giving out a lot of money to um, listeners. And I don't know if that's ever really been done at all. Although we did have to stop doing it. But subject matter wise, I know we cast a pretty wide net and yeah, we do go in cycles of wilder and wilder and eventually too wild. And then we recalibrate. It might be fair to say that every 10th show is in the realm of a prank on you guys. But we're in an age where a show can't really be put in the typical boxes that we're used to. It might not be an either or, it might be a both. And I think that's a good thing. What else can I say? You've heard this all before. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus, please. And I know, again, we're a little behind on the releases, but a big part of that this time is because I spent the last week at a pretty interesting conference, the Science of Consciousness Conference, put on by the University of Arizona. I figured I would try something different as a plus member bonus. I went to this conference only actually because Graham of Gramerica sent me the link and said, hey man, look at this. It's going on right in your backyard. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, it looks kind of interesting. I went, I took a lot of notes and I'm going to put together a little conference review bonus show because a lot of what people tell me they like about the Higher Side Chats is how I, with the guest, of course, Synthesize complex material for busy people. And that's legitimate. This show often is thought of as pretty good cliff notes to complex and lengthy topics. So I'm going to put together a little crash course of what this conference was to me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because at $500 a head, this wasn't really a conference for everyone. It was Google executives and Noam Chomsky and quantum physicists discussing the latest in things like making machines conscious or detailing various aspects of brain function. Some interesting at face value, and some interesting because we get inside the minds of some people whose work we disagree with. All that stuff. So, right now, I'm trying to get back on the right show schedule, but I'm also putting this together too, so there's another reason to sign up for Plus. And we'll see how it goes, but I guess I don't have a whole lot more to add. So I'm going to get out of here. Thanks for listening. I've done my part. Your move, pesticide peddlers, corporate crop creators, and facilitators of the American farmland famine. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. 
torn apart We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline That he carries all the pain in the world As we blindly clap and cheer from the sidelines It's clear on all intrigue from the very start Smoking gun.